Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. On this episode, I sat down with Dan Hodges. He is a retired FBI profiler, hostage negotiator, and counterintelligence officer. So cool. Oh my gosh, these are these are things that interest me very much. I went to his house and um, we sat down and chatted about all sorts of things. He did tell me that I have the serial killer earlobes. Apparently there's an earlobe marker that says whether or not you're going to be a serial killer. I don't know if I was proud to have that or horrified. <laughs> Those of you who know me well know that I'm always interested in reading about serial killers. I think they're fascinating. Um... That being said, he's now retired, as I, as I uh, mentioned, and he has a private investigation firm. So that makes sense to me. I mean, can you imagine having your life be all about all those things and then retiring and just, you know, kicking around the house? It'd be maddening. So he has uh, the private investigation firm, which I've posted a link to that on heyhumanpodcast.com. So if you are in need of such a thing, there it be. He's super chill dude. I mean, I guess you'd have to be to be a hostage negotiator. You have to be calm, really super calm. Um, he is the epitome of a laid back guy, as far as I could tell. Um, oh, that weird noise is my pipes. Not my pipes, but the pipes in my kitchen. I got to get that fixed. Anyway, I don't know if you even heard that. You might not have. It sounds like a kind of like a moose crying or a cow passing gas kind of both together. It can be off-putting nonetheless. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, so Dan was very cool. is super interesting. And um, in fact, if you, for the kids playing at home, I do say interesting and fascinating in this episode probably three dozen times. I'm so enthralled by all this kind of information. In other news, uh, I am about to do sort of... I haven't figured it out yet. I don't know if I want to do advertising. I don't know if I want to do um, like a Patreon thing. There is a donut... Donut? There's a donut button on my page. (laughs) Every time you hit the donut button, a donut will come to your door. Wouldn't that be amazing? Somebody needs to invent that. Somebody probably has invented that. The donut app. Anyway, there's a donate button on my heyhumanpodcast.com page. If you like what you hear, you're digging it, you want to hear it, you want to hear it, keep going. Um, it does this, the website and the, the hosting and all the stuff, it does cost money, obviously, um, out of my pocket and happy to do it. But if anybody feels like chipping in and, and donating, that would be awesome. Um, that's enough about that. Don't forget to go on iTunes and rate and review Hey Human Podcast. If you get a moment, it'd be fantastic. And as always, Instagram.com slash Hey Human Podcast, Facebook.com slash Hey Human Podcast, and email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. I would love to hear from you. That's my best William Shatner impersonation. Impersonation. Wow, I'm doing great with words today. Crazy words. Oh, words. So, that's about that. I've rambled on long enough. Thanks for listening, as always. Hope you enjoy. Here we go. Hi, Dan Hodges. 
How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks. Thank you for being on Hey Human. Um, You are someone that I wanted to talk to since I started this podcast because I find it fascinating. You are a retired FBI profiler. Correct. And currently a private investigator. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yes. But it's the profiling that I'm so fascinated by. So that profiling in general began, what, in the 70s? That... Uh, yeah, I think it started getting popular then. Uh, Behavioral Science Unit at Quantico started uh, doing some things in conjunction with the National Academy, which was a thing that Mr. Hoover incorporated years ago, where police officers come into Quantico for training. Mm-hmm. And this, they were always saying, we need help on crime scenes and you know offender profiles and things like that. And... Uh, a lot of it was developed in conjunction with the university. Sorry. Did it mess up? <laughs> I just pulled the little wire out. Oh, okay. Hold on. One second. That's your power cord? Yeah. I think I probably have enough. This. I, you know what? I have enough. It should last. Okay. We'll be fine. All right. University of Virginia. I'm trying to think of the guy's name that was mm-hmm. the um, kind of the impetus for the Bureau to... One thing about the FBI, we, we like to steal stuff from people that was that were doing good, you know. So, sure. Uh, I know Park Stearns was another one guy, and he was in Texas, I think, and then University of Virginia, and I can't remember that guy's name, but uh, they developed a program using a lot of his parameters, and uh, Roy Hazelwood, John Douglas, um, Ken Reasoner, um, Uh, just several guys that got together and did that and uh, what the profiling was it's not like some people think it's based on many many studies of crime scenes and offenders when they would get an offender and say he's convicted they would do intensive interviews of that person male or female mostly male but some female and uh, they developed a protocol from those interviews okay Mm -hmm. Let's look at the crime scene that the police department did. And these investigations are only as good as the crime scene. So if they mess that up on the front end, it's pretty hard. Yeah. You've probably seen a lot of cases like that. Yeah. Around. Uh, and. Uh, <clears throat> well, you read about mistrials due to crime scene yeah. forensics getting messed things up. Things that they've messed up, yeah, and the laboratory didn't do it right, things like that. But like I say, we take an offender that has been convicted. And we go back and look at the crime scene and say, okay, here's what he did at that crime scene, and this is the offender. So we kind of know what he's like by the interview. Then we look at the crime scene. They did this over and over thousands of times and developed a protocol. Mm -hmm. For instance, when you go to a crime scene, say it's a rape. Mm -hmm. The guy breaks in the house and rapes a woman. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is he an organized offender or is he a disorganized offender? The organized offender will bring a rape kit with them, like a little bag with... You with, get those at Walmart, right? Yeah, just ropes, <laughs> you know, plastic ties, yeah, ropes, duct tape, all that stuff. gloves, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, he'll bring that with him, knowing ahead of time that he's going to do this. Now, yeah. the disorganized offender would break in and then look around the house, what can I find, like a... I'll cut a cord off a lamp and tie her up with that. Or if, if it's a murder, then he'll probably find the weapon there, like a butcher knife in the kitchen or something. The organized offender would bring 
All his tools. All his tools with him. So that's that's basically an overview of what we look for. Then if you if you say, okay, this guy is an organized offender. He brought everything with him. Okay, here's a list of things that an organized offender would probably be. You know, and it's not always exact. I mean, it's it's just something that we give to the investigators to. Here's what you might be looking for. What kind of vehicle he might drive? Is he a single child? Is he uh, was he abused? Uh, all these kind of things. See, now that, I find that fascinating. How can you look at a crime scene and and say, oh, well, he's probably a single child or he drives a Jeep Cherokee or... Well, you can't really say it definitively, but it gives you a place to go for. You're looking... If you have 15 suspects, you look at those 15 suspects. Anybody meet the profile of that crime scene? And that's what they're doing, basically. It's not rocket science or anything. It's just based on studies, years and years and years of studies. Is an organized uh, offender trickier to catch uh, mo- it's a higher intelligence I would yeah imagine. most most all yeah they have more intelligence and uh, maybe a little more cunning like we had this guy here the the wooded rapist I don't know if you read about him but mm, I don't think so uh, I won't say his name but he was convicted Metro Police uh, Pat Pastiglione's a great detective with homicide and he and others worked on this guy he would Basically, it was here in Williamson County. He would hide in the woods and watch houses and watch young females when they're routine. He'd mm-hmm. get their routine down. And like if they went out on <clears throat> in a hot tub or something at night, then he would come up in a costume and rape them. Mm-hmm. His first victim happened to be the sister of an FBI agent. And, uh, and she really fought back on this and... and uh, bit his hand and took that piece of flesh and stuck it under the mattress and that was our first DNA that we had on him because we didn't know then as, as the cases I think he had eight or nine rapes in this area hmm. as the cases progressed then that DNA eventually matched to him but, but that's the sort of thing that gosh she's a smart does. woman yeah yeah she to be have that kind of wherewithal in yeah. that she moment. fought him you know and yeah a lot of the other ones didn't and I hate to see when they take, teach these classes to the women about what to do if you're raped. Yeah. There's no real There's no rhyme answer. or reason. No. Yeah. I've heard two things. I've heard fight back or don't fight back based on, like, you could get killed if you fight back. But I would imagine your flight or fight responses. If you can get away, get away. But, yeah. you know, like if you're outside or something. A lot of these joggers now getting accosted on yeah. these jogging trails. And uh, if you can outrun them, do it. But... I would never tell a person always fight or always submit. I mean, it's just it's, right. it's a toss-up. So, you've I'm sure been on a lot of cases in your career. Mm-hmm. Is there anything? I know that you probably don't want to. I assume the reason why you didn't say that rapist name is you don't want to glorify him at all or give him any kind of yeah and any kind of notoriety. There's relatives out there, you know, sure. wives and yeah, yeah, people. You know, yeah, you just don't want to. No, that makes sense. Um, is there any particular crime scene that you worked that, as you were looking at it, you're like, oh, I, I can tell, because you've studied all the things, you could tell who it was you were looking for, a particular case that might have... Yeah, one that the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation was working was, um, and I don't want to say his name again, but he was very notorious here in the area. He killed 
lot of fast food workers. Mm. He would go into McDonald's and Captain D's and <clears throat> Baskin Robbins. And they called me up to Clarksville. You know where Dunbar Cave is up in Clarksville? Uh-uh. David, I know where Clarksville is. Yeah, David Allen Cove oh, yeah. lives there. Yeah, sure. But uh, they called me up and said we got a double homicide. It was two young girls that worked at Baskin Robbins. And it looked like to the investigators up there, it's two perpetrators that did this. But when I saw the, I got there during the crime scene, and I could tell it was one guy. And one girl was floating, floating face down on the edge of the lake. The other one was up the hill, uh, stabbed in the back several times. And you can see the blood splatters as she ran. He was chasing her up the hill. And I surmised if it had been two people, then he probably would have had them the same place. But she got away and chased her. Now, that's not exact, but it turned out to be pretty accurate when they, they finally arrested the guy. Why did he prey on fast food workers? Uh, opportunity, crime oh. of opportunity. Okay. It and I can, he's, he's deceased now, and I can say his name. It's Paul Dennis Reed was his name. Mm-hmm. He's, his dad died in prison. I swear, it's something about the three first names. Why is it people with three first names for their whole name? <laughs> and I've read all these books about how you look at a, an offender like that, and certain facial features will, like you know, nail them. But that's not really. What accurate. do you mean by that? Well, they say if your earlobes, you know, you got the earlobe here. If if they're they grow straight down into the uh-huh. side, they're likely to be some kind of sexual offender. But that's not. I don't think it's accurate. But this guy was. And when I looked at him, and I interviewed him, yeah, definitely. I, I never brought that up. But uh, that's something that somebody wrote about, some psychiatrist at some time. Uh, do I have that? Yeah, you got it. You're, you're nailed. Uh-oh. <laughs> no, but, I better watch myself. But uh, actually, actually, profiling was a very small part of what I did. I only did that for the last 12 years. So when profiling began, from what I understand in reading some of the history of it, is that... <clears throat> A lot of people, even within the FBI, maybe police force, were, were kind of poo-pooed it. They were like, yeah. oh, that's just psychology bunk. Well, I got that when I went up to Clarksville, but uh, you're not right. I've already, the sheriff said, I already got these guys in jail, the ones that did it. You know, they, they were just burglars that he had grabbed in the area. And mm-hmm. I said, no, I don't think so, but we went back and forth. But yeah. the TBI pretty much listened and knew what they were doing. What drew you to profiling then, if you'd only done it the last 12 Well, years? I was a hush negotiator way back. I did that first, and I got a lot of classes at behavioral science, you know, at Quantico. I'd go back for in-services. Sure. I kind of got interested in that, but... Uh, you become more interesting every minute. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was a hush negotiator first, <clears throat> and attached to a SWAT team. I was on the first SWAT team at Washington Field Office yeah. when it, Mr. Hoover died. You know, we didn't have SWAT, and we didn't do international cases and things like that. But after he passed away, they kind of branched out into stuff like that. So I'm um, curious, if you were a hostage negotiator, I imagine there's a fair amount of profiling that takes place in that just inev- uh, inevitably. As you're talking to the people, you try to size them up, of course. Sure. But the basic thing in negotiating is when you get in a situation like he's going to the bank and He's robbed the bank, but the police get there before he gets out. Now he's got captives in there. He's holding a gun on them. Mm-hmm. Okay, now it's my time to talk to him, 
through a bullhorn or through the telephone or something to try to get him out to surrender. You know. The first five minutes of a situation like that is the most deadly because the anxiety level is way up here, way high. And it's the negotiator's task to bring that down mm-hmm. to the point where, look, your only way out of there is through me. I'm the one you got to trust, you know. Otherwise, this SWAT team surround the building, they're going to light you up, you know. And that's what, that's what you start with. Do people tend to then listen to you? or Because mm-hmm. yeah. I would imagine there's a fair amount of ego attached to someone who's willing to not only rob a bank but take a hostage. So, I mean, how do you even... Well, a criminal in the act, usually they didn't really mean to want to take a hostage. Because mm. that's complications. Mm-hmm. And we have something called, you ever heard of the Stockholm Syndrome? Yes. Okay. That developed in 1973. It was a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden. Mm-hmm. And the guy held, <clears throat> let's see how many did he have? Three hostages, I believe. They were bankers, bank workers. Mm-hmm. Two women and one man. And he held them for like 24 hours. And they talked to him and talked to him. Finally, he decided to give up. He was hungry and all that kind of stuff. So he gave up. And they started interrogating him. Well, when he came out, police threw him up against the wall, you know, kind of roughed him up a little bit. And one of the women that had been the hostage came out, jumped on the back of one of the officers and said, leave him alone. He he didn't mean to do this. You know, they said, wait a minute. He's held a gun on you for 24 hours. And then they started looking at other cases like that. Hmm. And really the father of our uh, hostage negotiation program was a, NYPD captain named Frank Bolts, B-O-L-Z. And I think Frank's still living. He, you know, this was back in set early 70s when he started. And he was a negotiator for New York Police Department and mm-hmm. just had a really good track record of getting people out. So they started looking. Again, the Bureau looks at that and says, we need to incorporate this. So they bring him in and put a program together and it's really really successful man it'd be so cool to go and take fbi classes that would be incredible i suppose they don't really let civilians do that but not much i took a bunch of them but probably too many (laughs) (laughs) i mean i'm just imagining all the things you learn it's it's gotta be so fascinating yeah i forgot half of it (laughs) (laughs) well you don't need it so it's somewhere in your brain probably yeah. So, if you sticking with the hostage negotiation for a second, when you go in and you're trying to get these people to come back out, and they know it's it's really a a lose lose situation. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you're just trying to make sure they're not gonna. You're trying to limit the amount of casualty at that point. Try to play on their survival instinct. Do they want to get out of this? <clears throat> now you have some that are want to do suicide by cop. Mm. And they're there for that purpose, and you got to try to figure that out. At that point, you want to get them to a point where maybe a sniper can take them out or something like that if, if he's going to escalate the situation. But the one premise that we go on is time is on our side. The longer the time lapses, the more successful you're going to be. Hmm. First five, ten minutes, that's you got to really get that anxiety level down. Which is the opposite for something like... I guess a murder situation where time is of the essence well, as far as catching somebody. Yeah, that's an investigation. This is an actual on on the moment on the moment deal. And the reason time is good because you got hunger comes in, thirst comes in, um, you know, wanting to, wanting to get out. 
Sure. Uh, go to the bathroom. Their own instincts of getting out. Yeah. We had sense. one guy that gave up one time, but before he, he went in an office space and there was four hostages, I believe. It was a domestic situation that started out. And the the target was not there. The the woman was not there, but he got caught in there and got these four hostages in the office. Just before he came in, he had drunk a six-pack of beer. Well, you know what you got to do when you... A lot of peeing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that was able, able to get him out on that. That basic instinct, you know that. Why didn't he just pee in a corner somewhere? I'm surprised. Asking that later, he said, "There's women there." Wow, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. But you know that wouldn't happen on every every case. Sure. Just just that particular one. But uh, it's gotta be like juggling uh, chainsaws and kittens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. yeah. Okay, if they if they ask for food, mm-hmm. okay, we don't go to McDonald's and buy a sack of hamburgers and get that into them. We go to Kroger and get a loaf of bread, some mayonnaise, some mustard, some lunch meat, put that in there to them. You know why that is? Because it's a routine feeling and it makes you human to have to make a sandwich. That's I guess. part of it. He's gonna he's not gonna put his gun down and make the sandwich. He's gonna put say you make my sandwich. Okay. Yeah. So now you're interacting with him. Yeah. What's the what's the biggest social time in a family it's dinner time. time. You sit yeah. down and eat. So here, you've made a sandwich for him. That raises the Stockholm level in your favor just a little bit. Wait, does the Stockholm Syndrome work the opposite way, too? Mm-hmm. It's not just for the person being held, but for the right. person. Oh, mm-hmm. see, I never, you don't yeah. really think about that, Yeah, that it goes the other way, too. If he's robbed a 7-Eleven and got caught in the act, and he's got hostages in there, your food thing's probably not going to be out the window because he's got a a lot of Jolly Ranchers happening. Everything he can do, honey buns and whatever yeah. he needs, is sure. right there. Yeah. But in other situations, you use food. Okay, you ask for a cigarette. You don't throw him a whole pack of cigarettes. You take a pack of cigarettes, you empty all of them but two. Throw that into him. He smokes those cigarettes. He's going to want another one. Every time you give him something, you ask for something in return. Hmm. Would you, okay, I know you want a cigarette. Would you let... Susie go. She's in there and she's, you know, she's pregnant. Or you, you, you try to find out who's in there and get a little victimology going with it, mm-hmm. and appeal to his sense. And you don't want to hurt this elderly gentleman. I mean, do you he, find that that's the case? Then it with most people, most offenders, that they still do have a thread of humanity. Sure, happening. Except the sociopaths, you know. But like the Ted Bundys, wouldn't? Yeah, you? yeah. Now he might too. I mean, you you just don't. There's no cut and dried answer. Sure. You just got to use your instincts. Did Ted Bundy ever let anybody go? Mm, I don't know. I don't remember. I don't feel like he did. I don't remember. Probably not because that would, they would be a witness. Yeah. Oh, that is a good That's point. Several of the, like Edmund Kemper, the big guy over in, in Utah, <clears throat> he never let anybody go because they're witnesses. Paul Dennis Reed here in Nashville, he tried to kill everybody because he didn't want a witness. One Mexican guy that worked at McDonald's survived like uh, 14 stab wounds, and he was our great witness on the stand. Pat Postiglione did a great job with him, interviewing him. And uh, But he he was a survivor. Yeah. And uh, Paul Dennis Reed had done this at a bowling alley in Dallas, Texas, about 10 years before, and he left a witness there, and it got him caught. He, he served like eight years in the... That's it? Yeah, he didn't kill anybody. 
Oh. He let he didn't. That's why he said, "I got to kill him now if I'm going to do it." So. Oh. Yes. And he wasn't necessarily a sexual offender. He didn't, as far as I know, he didn't assault anybody. He was just murder. And he's psychotic. So back to the profiling. You had mentioned when, when we met that um, you had interviewed Dahmer. Yeah, that was many years ago. Uh, I, I can't remember what. That was in conjunction with the Behavioral Science Project, you know. So basically... He, he's that, already caught. Yeah, he's already caught, and you guys went in and interviewed a whole lot of people that had been caught if they were willing to... Yeah, just, just building up our prof, our protocols for profiles. Well, well, what was that like to talk to him? Well, I didn't. I wasn't the main interview. I was just sitting on it. Oh, okay. He was jovial, congenial, uh, really didn't offer much, I mean. Most of these guys try to be manipulative. Uh, Bundy was a manipulative guy. Mm. He, he was, was highly intelligent, right? Yeah, and yeah. he he tried to ask the officer. Now I wasn't any, involved in anything with him, but he tried to ask the officers about their families and you know get them talking about themselves. You know, turn it around. He had to always redirect them. Now we're not here to talk about me. Let's talk about you. So, mm. at that point, why do you think it is they're caught? And in Ted Bundy's case, he's going to the chair. There's no doubt about it. Why not just, why maintain that all the way to the end? I I would almost think that if I was a narcissist, I would want people to know how clever I am and why well, I did what I do. did. Some of them do. It's not black and white. None that's yeah. cutting. No. Who is the most interesting of the sociopaths you've met or interviewed yourself? Oh... Probably Reed, I guess, uh, the one here. But uh, mainly, we would offer advice to the like detectives, Metro detectives, when they they were doing the interview because they had to make the case. Mm-hmm. It's not an FBI case if it's a murder, unless it's on a federal reservation, or it crosses state lines. Then well, then they ask for assistance and call a UFAP warrant, unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. Ah. Then we can go after them. But the jurisdiction still lies where the crime was. They but bring them back. Even if, what if there's crimes in many states? Say, um, I don't know. I assume there are serial killers out there that cross. Oh, they're very mobile. Yeah. Yeah. We had one here, Menendez. I think was he was a truck driver and he killed prostitutes. Mm. And Postiglione got him too. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but yeah, they're very mobile. But the only way we get involved with that is if the district attorney, like in Chicago says, okay, we, we think he's left the state. They'll apply, they'll go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, apply for an unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, which makes it a federal crime. Now, we only look for them, and we may interview them and catch them, but normally we bring them back to the jurisdiction and let the police do their, do their thing. Do the modern-day shows, like The Criminal Minds, The Mentalist, all these shows, and, you know, some of them, of course, the characters are psychic, and they go in and they just feel what's going on. Yeah. But in these shows, the, the, the prevalence of these shows are incredibly popular. Has that actually made it more difficult because it makes the criminal element one step smarter? They know that there's all this forensic stuff. There's no, you know, they... Or is it still look pretty much the same? They always get careless at some point. Yeah. You know, there's some that don't, you know. Hubris but, takes over. Yeah. There's a, Mickey Miller was a great detective with Metro, and he had a good quote one time. They asked him, the reporter asked him, uh, Captain Miller, if a psychic led you to find a body 
of a person, uh, what would you say to that psychic? He'd say, I'd probably say, turn around and put your hands behind your back. Interesting. Let me handcuff you. Because hmm. he said, I, of course, I'll get a lot of flashback on that, you know, that... Yeah. People, I, I people personally believe in, believe in intuitive ability. Well, it's I, intuitive ability, but, you know, the, but, the criminal minds show one thing. We never got our own private airplane to fly around. Yeah, they get, <laughs> they're pretty fancy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. BAU unit for that. No, um, didn't didn't work that way. Yeah. We're lucky to get a coach seat, you know. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, thank you for your service. I should have said that at the top of the... Of the conversation. That was fun career. It was good. What? So, how about some uh, highlights? What is something that you can? Oh, worked on a FCI undercover case. FCI's foreign counterintelligence. Mm. The <clears throat> it was common knowledge that the KGB was picking up information from somebody in the military, and. Through informant information, I don't even know how it originated. I was just one of the players eventually. I'd come back from, Lang- I'd been to language school in 78. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I was on the fugitive squad in Washington. One day they called me and said, would you be interested in going out to Monterey for a year at the Defense Language Institute and taking a language? And I said, well, I hadn't thought about it. And I called Gloria. I said, you want to move to California for a year? She said, let's book it. This is your wife? Yeah. 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 We've been married 48 years, so she's been in, in all of this. Yeah. but uh, I bet she'd be an interesting conversation. <laughs> she wouldn't tell you a thing. <laughs> so I went out and took Vietnamese for oh. uh, 48 months at Defense Language Institute. Came back to Washington and got on the Chinese Communist Squad. And it was a foreign counterintelligence type stuff. I'd been criminal all up until then. And you served in the intra- in infantry as well. Yeah, very briefly. Military. I ROTC graduate out of t- Tennessee Tech. Yeah. Went to the Army, jumped school. And, but um, anyway, came back to, I was on the Fusia Squad, went to language school, came back to Washington to work foreign counterintelligence. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> the active squad on FCI was the uh, Russian KGB at that time. They'd been abolished since the Soviet Union fell. Putin was one of those guys, you know. I got a call one day from Don Marshall, who's my supervisor. He said, we got a special case going, and we need, every squad needs to give up three guys. Well, I was fairly new. He said, you're it. I said, oh, these spe- I hate these specials. They usually turn out to be boring. But this thing consisted of all summer long laying on the beach in Ocean City, Maryland, watching the KGB guys and seeing who they met with. They were in here, in here from the embassy, you know. Mm-hmm. But they were spies. I mean, there's no doubt. And we followed them all the time. Didn't they know they were being followed, or did they think they were? I've been in a restaurant in Washington before where there's two of them over there, three of us over here, and they bought our lunch. They, we get to pay, and they That's said, like the movies. Well, yeah. But it's a cat and mouse game. Anyway, we did observe. I didn't observe it, but one of our team guys did pass an envelope. To a, mm. a Navy guy, mm. so they got on to him. And long story short, they determined that they were manning dead. You want know a dead drop is? Mm-mm. That's where. This is all before cyber stuff. You know, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have internet. Mm-hmm. This was in seventy. 
eight, just when I come back from language school. There wasn't any of that. In fact, we had pagers. We had to, you know, mm-hmm. I had a crazy supervisor. Every time I was out working something, he paged me, wanted me to find a phone and call him. When you're in D.C., pay phones are always cut off. The, you know, somebody's vandalized them. You can't. So it was frustrating. <laughs> but anyway, they established this case called Poltergeist. That was the... Uh, you can probably Google it, and I think there's probably some stuff on it, but I think that movie had just come out, so they named this mm-hmm. Poltergeist. Well, mm-hmm. the dead drop is where the, the spy comes over, the the person, military person or the government person is going to pass some secrets to him, so they find a location, like under a bridge. Mm-hmm. They put the documents under there. They leave. The KGB guy comes and gets this information puts a bundle of cash where that was ah. the mold of the person in the U.S. comes back and gets the money okay the most notorious one of these was uh, Hanson Robert Hanson <coughs> he was an FBI agent he was passing secrets to the Soviets and they got on to him And but this going back I keep digressing back oh, to the poltergeist case we had a we created a false uh, engineering company mm-hmm. named Vitus Engineering and we had five different spots we knew it was somewhere in the woods of, around Dogman, Virginia which was just below Langley where CIA is very wooded area so we had these five dead zones and we put trailers there and we were making like we were working on telephone lines, things like that and this I, had, I was the supervisor of one of the sites and this went on for six months so you're pretending to put together a company. Yeah. Well, we did. They have a company. They had a backstop and everything. Yeah. Uh, well, I never knew, you know, what, what had happened when the thing went down. Uh, typical Bureau of Fashion, they call us in and say, okay, the case is over. Y'all go back to your regular stuff. Well, what happened? Well, we can't tell you. Oh. Does you that know, happen a lot? Oh, yeah. It's called a need to know, you know. The, sure. You just don't want to spread around. Well, we found out later it was pretty pretty decent case and they arrested several people that were navy people that were doing doing that they were selling secrets right yeah. so sounds probably very common though i'm sure uh i think they just caught one recently uh, let's see what was he it was a chinese guy he was in the military but he was yeah trying to do that but. yeah it's amazing the power of money oh yeah what it will do well hansen was an agent in fact he worked at quantico for a while, and he was passing big secrets to the, and they estimate that some of the stuff that he gave the Soviets resulted in the death of several of our CIA operatives, you know, mm-hmm. revealing sources and things like that. That, I mean, you, treason, obviously, that mm-hmm. that man, I assume, was put to death, Hanson. Life in prison at, uh, he's in Colorado, maximum, huh. Colorado. Okay. Uh, he was offered a plea deal to take death off the case to see we tried to find out what damage he did mm. so he did come up with all the things that he had done and yeah so he got life without parole sure it's fascinating why do you think he did it just money he's a he was a complicated guy he was a very religious guy on the on the front mm. he was a catholic and he'd go to mass every day and that kind of stuff and but then on the other end, he was going to strip clubs and had hookers and 
uh, drank a lot and things like that, beat his wife. And, mm. I mean, it's just a total dichotomy for what he wanted people to think he was, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know that that's so uncommon. Yeah. yeah. So you had mentioned as well that um, you, but this one we spoke, was that yesterday? I don't know. I'm losing track of time. But um, you had uh, had a conversation with James Earl Ray? Yeah. He was, he was over at the prison. So James Earl Ray, for those of you listening that who that don't know, he is the man who assassinated Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. King. Yeah. He had escaped from Brushy Mountain and went to Europe, got to Europe somehow, and Kenny Bounds and George Zeiss, two agents from Quantico, were tasked to go over there and bring him back. And he, they put him in the, they call the walls here, the Tennessee State Prison. It's the old prison where they filmed The Green Mile. Remember mm-hmm. that movie? I do. It's right out there on uh, on Cockrell Bend. Okay. It's still there. Yeah. They take tours of it now. And all. Huh. That's where old Sparky was. And Anyway, he was in there, and I was in, the, in there to interview somebody else, and they had me wait in the library, and he was man in the library. He was working in the library. I just had a casual conversation with him. He told me about his book. But I, I didn't really interview him or anything. We just exchanged pleasantries. And yeah. About it. Yeah. But, I think that's, that's, so that's twice now you've said that the people you <clears throat> talked with um, were genial, were pleasant oh, and yeah. conversational. And I think that's so... That's such an important thing to note, for me at least, is that the people, the people who are like this, who do these things, can be very... We like to paint them as these monsters that are ogres and have warts all over them and, you know, are out, you know, slashing and gashing. But they can also just go to the grocery store and say hello to you over the melons, you yeah. know. Now, we had one guy that <clears throat> kind of interesting case. His name was Roy Edward Flowers. And I believe he's deceased now, too. He was a bank robber. He robbed probably 75 banks all Whoa, over the country. That's a lot. Yeah. And he robbed one here. Um, my partner and I were right down the street eating lunch, and he robbed one. The time we got there, he was gone. But we had good surveillance camera of him, and he had a, always wore this hat. He'd come in the bank, and he put that hat on, and the hat said, let's see, what is the exact quote? No, if guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have guns. That was on his hat, baseball cap. No way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he had a, a sense of humor. I got a great picture of him somewhere. I think it's in that scrapbook right there. Anyway, he was at, you know where the Merchants is downtown? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That was an old flop house. I mean, it was a, a drugstore in the 1800s, mm-hmm. turned into a hotel, mm-hmm. and it had a bar there. It was seedy, real seedy. Lower Broadway was mm-hmm. terrible. Mm-hmm. When I got here in 1980, it was, it was hookers and drugs and... Book, dirty bookstores and all that down Lower Broad. Well, Roy Flowers was in there at the bar, mm-hmm. and he had a gun in his belt, and the bartender saw it, got nervous, didn't know who he was, of course, so he calls Metro. Well, Leon Taylor was walking the beat, the Metro uh, officer at that time. Leon and I became good friends. He's walking the beat, so he gets the call. He goes in there, he and his partner... And Flowers is sitting at the bar because he didn't know who he was. And he says, sir, I need to talk to you. Would you step outside? And Flowers turns around with the gun and boom. Leon put his hand up and shot his ring finger off. So we always called him Stubby from then on, but shot his ring. His wedding ring went flying. Finger was off. Well, the partner pulls out and shoots Roy Flowers right here twice. 
right there. Right in the chest. He goes down. Uh, all the other officers arrive, and they, they arrest Flowers. They take him to the hospital, patch him up, take him to the workhouse, which is over in East Nashville. That's where they put the real violent guys. And so I wanted to, I had like five bank robbers I needed to close, and I, he was suspecting like three of them. So I went over to interview him, and I, they opened the cell. I went in the cell, closed the cell door. He stands up and pulls his shirt up, and he says, See where you bastard shot me? And he said, That won't get me. You guys can't do anything to me. You know? okay. Wow. Pretty nice tough guy. guy. Yeah. <laughs> nice guy. So I gave him a business card, and we talked. And I think I went back and talked to him several times, and we did close, I think, one robbery that he had admitted. Well, he gets transported to Petersburg, Virginia, where there was a robbery that they were trying to they were going to interview him, he escapes. And he's out in the woods, and the dogs are chasing, just like in the movies, you know. The how hound dogs are chasing. How did he get out? It's so crazy. I don't, I don't know how he got out. God. He's chasing. Well, they finally find him. You know, they surround him, and he gives up, and they handcuff him. They search him, they find my business card in his pocket. So they said, okay, what's up with this? So they called, all upset. Like I said, well, I'm doing a bank robbery investigation. So it was okay, but... Oh man. They're like, what are you robbing banks too now? Oh yeah. I was his partner, yeah. <laughs> um I'm so let's uh, back to profiling. We bounced around I know, but um when I've often heard you know, as a woman of course growing up, you, you hear about all the things about rape and you're like, Okay, always be vigilant, always be aware, all that stuff. Um and now, of course, there's things like roofies and all this sort of... Date, date rape Date drugs, rape yeah. drugs, correct. Um, I've actually had personal friends who have been uh, drugged at a bar and kept for a weekend and uh -huh. had to escape, things like that. I know it's a real thing. Um, my question is, I've always heard that rapists, for example, are operating not from sex, but from a place of anger and violence, but... I mean, that's that's sort of the, that's a simplistic way to put it, right? Is there any kind of way for a person to know, like, any kind of something that a, someone might give off where your spidey sense might... Not really. Roy, Roy Hazelwood was our expert at behavioral science on rape. And he always, I took several classes that he taught. He said rape is not a sexual crime. It's a crime of violence. It's, it's not. They're not really there for... Getting sexual off. gratification, except they do occasionally, you know, which gives us good DNA evidence if they do. Sure. But it's it's more of a control, okay. temper, control, something in their mind that women, they want to get back at women for something. And it's all kind of, you know, tabs you can put on them for that. But, um, but there's not really a marker. You meet no. somebody and you just say, oh, other than your intuition, which I do, I do think speaks quite loudly in some cases. Well, the victimology plays, plays a big role. How do you mean? Okay, if you're a, you're a girl and you go to a bar, get at the bar and get drunk, mm -hmm. you're going you're gonna to have a problem. I mean, maybe. It's just... Because you you put yourself in a weekend. Yeah, sure. That's yeah. not to say that drunk girls... I, I understand what you're saying. When it's they, not the victim's fault, but it, it, it puts the victim in a place the where threat they, level is raised. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, uh, it's not Vigilance just, is, is yeah. 
is a good survival mechanism. Yeah, and running by yourself in a secluded area. That's, With your headphones on and you can't hear anything. Your victimology goes up. Yeah. yeah. It's that level. Sure. So vigilance is the big thing, but still, you can still get in trouble, you know. Sure. Uh, there's been several cases here of notoriety lately, but there's a couple of them I can't talk about. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think there's any one way you can look at a guy and say, oh, he's a rapist. Yeah. You look at the toughest, meanest looking guy, he could be the They're usually nicest, pussycats. nicest fellow in the world. Yeah, I've noticed that about big, yeah. huge bouncers, that they tend to be very sweet. Yeah. And it's people. not not the big guys. I never had trouble in 30 years arresting a big guy. I, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I can't put that in a box, so that's the way it always is. But I got my butt whipped a couple of times by little wiry guys, you know. They just they just Something didn't, to prove. didn't want to go. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. I read uh, recently that there are upwards of 50 active serial killers in the United States at any given time. Do you agree with that? I don't know. Oh. I have no idea. There's no way to know. Could be 100. Could yeah. be, you know. So it's not really, I mean, there's, what, 350 million people in America? Maybe more. I don't know. I lose track. Close, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so in one way, that sounds like a whole lot of people going out there murdering people. But on the other hand, I guess in comparison, it's still a tiny fraction. But And you, you try to lump all the murders into, like, serial killers. They're not all serial killers. Some of them are spree killers. A spree killing is like when you go on a... You get in your car and you drive several states and you're killing people along the way. You're not really classified as a serial killer. It's a spree. You're on a crime spree. Uh. You may kill five people at once. Uh, a serial killer usually spreads it out a little bit. You know, a spree killer is usually in a short time frame. So it's kind of an oversimplification. But. So, like the um, the DC shooters, would they be considered spree killers or serial killers? They were serial killers. They they targeted people. You know, and they were shooting out of the back of a trunk of a car, if I recall. Yeah, yeah. They, the sniper. Yeah. One of them got the death penalty. The younger one got life, I think, something mm-hmm. like that. But yeah, that, that's probably a serial killer, I would think. Mm-hmm. But. Um, did you see that movie? Woody Harrelson was in it. Um, Natural Born Killers. Yeah, that oh, was free killers. You know, that was an intense movie. Yeah, it was just. So it's just like somebody goes, "Hey, let's for the hell of it, let's yeah. go do this." Right. Yeah, but something's got to be a little off to start with. I well, know sure. that there's the well, sure they are. the serial killers. There's that triangle, right? Bedwetter. Uh, was it arson? Bedwetter. And- Triad is called enuresis, the bedwetting, cruelty to animals, and uh, arson. Mm-hmm. If a child has those exhibits those three things, like through the age of ten, you might want to look at them a little bit. It's not all the time; it's not exact. But if you have those three, mm-hmm. then the psychiatrists are looking at them again. They've studied thousands of cases, and you know, go back to a Dahmer guy. You know, he probably had those. I'm not really sure if he did, but I think um, I think I remember reading that. He had that stuff. And yeah. I, I think he had the head wound thing, too, getting hit in the head Did at he, a young age. I didn't. I haven't heard that as the, when the triad, but... Uh, I, it may not be a, a part of the triad, but I think many of the serial killers, at least, that I have read about, they had a head trauma as mm. a kid. I listened to a great podcast because I'm fascinated by this stuff. It's called My Favorite Murder, and they go through and they talk about murders that have happened through all the way back. I mean, mm. as far back as their 
cataloged. So. Some show coming out on the History Channel about Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. They claim he, he moved it. From here. Yeah, moved yeah. to Chicago and he's buried somewhere. They think he's the H.H. H. There's speculation. There's Somebody has speculated H.H. H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper are the same person. Right. Yeah. So, I mean... Yeah. yeah. Jack the Ripper is a fascinating case. So just talking about profiling, right? They thought maybe he was a, a surgeon or somebody that had knowledge of anatomy. And I mean, you can tell that by the cuts, I guess. Or. Yeah. We had a fascinating case we studied. Of course, it was way before I was born, but a guy named Edward Gein. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. He was up in Michigan, I There's believe. a creepy dude. Yeah, he was cannibal. He'd, he'd mm-hmm. eat them. He'd cut them up and eat them. I mean, what? <laughs> Where do you think... Gosh, you know that turkey sandwich doesn't look that good. I think I'll go yeah. eat someone's face. I, yeah. You know, this. What? They found lampshades made out of skin, and mm-hmm. his cereal bowls were human skulls. I mean, it was something, you know. Well, how does somebody like that get made? Oh, uh, he got caught eventually. No, I don't mean get made. I mean, oh, literally, is how is he created? Something went loose somewhere. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't, you know, yeah. I can't answer that. He started first robbing graves. He the funeral, you know, the flowers uh-huh. just to be on a fresh grave. He'd dig them up and eat them. Oh. Then he got he got it, it's a progressive type of sickness, and he started kidnapping people, hanging them up in the barn and butchering them. Good that Lord. kind of thing, you know. Ed but, Gein is who uh, didn't they kind of use him for the Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Was, you know, there's a lot of things that went into that. Yeah. The Nazis had a fun time with skin as well, from yeah. what I remember reading. I was at Quantico when Jodie Foster came down doing research on that Silence of the Lambs. I didn't mm. ever see her, but did you see the movie? Oh yeah, yeah, I saw it. Yeah. Do you Hannibal, think it was Hannibal pretty... Lecter? Yeah, it's all fiction, but yeah, it's based on reading, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah, but you know why cannibals won't? I mean, uh, clowns won't eat cannibals. Why? It tastes funny. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a very small part of my career was criminal work mostly, bank robberies, kidnappings, extortions, interstate crimes, things like that. That, that was The kidnapping generally happened from a parent being disgruntled? About 88% of the kidnapping cases are... are uh, parental, parental rights. Yeah. Yeah. Stranger abductions are rare, but they happen in... You know, Elizabeth Smart, you know. Sure. Uh, many, many examples of it. That one was, there was a guy working on the house, and he, right? He was so. like the house painter or something. Yeah, he was a weirdo. Yeah. And he and his wife, you know, and they kind of made like she was their daughter. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But Mormon family. I mean, I think about this kind of stuff when I'm, when I'm in bed at night. I think the likelihood of somebody breaking in and murdering me is rather slim, you know, and I have mm-hmm. precautionary measures, obviously, cameras and alarms and all that kind of thing. But it certainly goes through, especially if you're interested in these things, that it goes through. I think it, it heightens your awareness, but in a good way, too. I suppose it makes you hypervigilant when you're getting into your car. You know, I don't just sit in my car and, and text or something. I mm-hmm. get in my car, I turn on my car, I drive away. I don't mm-hmm. stay there at, at night. Especially. Oh, you text while you're driving. No, no, I'm just saying. Like, I don't, because <laughs> you see a lot of people, especially at night, if you're leaving the bar or something, <clears> and I oh, see yeah. a lot of people get in their car, they shut the door, and then they start, like, doing their texting and stuff. And I, I, keep thinking like no don't do don't you're sit being, there you're being watched yeah you're sitting duck if i'm watching you who's to say someone else is watching you yeah that's right
I've worked a lot of uh, cartel cases. Oh. Dope. That's fascinating. We had wiretaps that we would do, you know. The so that is legal? I always, I'm so sure confused about that. If you I'm, go to a, a court. Oh, you have to get the... A very lengthy affidavit. One one affidavit I wrote for a, a uh, wiretap, Title Three they call it, was uh, 180 pages of the affidavit. Probable cause that you're... Where you're asking for the... And the judge reads it. Uh, first, it goes to Department of Justice. They review it. All the attorneys look at it, you know, and then it comes back down. You take it to a federal judge. He reads it. You come back the next day, and you swear under oath that it's accurate. Then you can get your get the technical guys to get the tap going, you know. Sometimes they have to climb a pole and direct a, a microwave dish or something. Just like in the movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then we sit and, and listen, and you have to minimize... Like if I'm wiretapping you and you're talking to your attorney, you've got to cut it off. Oh wow! Attorney-client privilege. Yeah. If you're talking to a medical about medical thing, it's called minimization. And we, I'd have to school all the people working on the thing. We'd do it 24 hours a day. Metro and TBI helped me with a lot of them. And we we came up. Uh, Southwest Express was the one my case. I got the. Uh, OCDF case of the year on that one. Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. Oh, congratulations. It was out of here, out of Nashville. But it was a cartel out of Guadalajara. And they were funneling massive amounts of cocaine. Into Nashville? Chicago, Indianapolis, Nashville, and Atlanta. And we just happened to get on them here. We are a music industry here. <laughs> it's a crossroads, too. That yeah. You ever go, go out I forty and see the interdiction guy sitting on the side of the road with the the SUVs? I guess they're not. No. You, you ever drive to Memphis? Ah, uh, once. Well, if you look next time you go, they'll be probably between Waverly and um, Jackson. Usually, in an SUV, they'll be sitting there. They're the interdiction units, and they they get tips from various things, and they'll pull somebody over. You know. Oh. Interesting. And uh, so we had that case, and we listened to these two guys. They were the middleman here. And we finally got enough evidence to go after them and took down oh, quite a quite a large amount of Mexicans. One in San Diego, a guy named Omar Rocha Soda. And he was the mastermind of it, but we took him down. It was it was an interesting case. It was a lot of work. Yeah, I but, imagine. Yeah. I've done two or three other wiretap cases, but there, it's not like you think you can just go, okay, let's go tap a phone. Does the NSA have to adhere to the no listening? It's called to a the... Pfizer rule, a Pfizer court. Okay. Yeah, they have to do that. Now they're, they're I always wonder about that when I'm talking to my dad on the phone and you hear this strange mm-hmm. click, I think, is that the NSA listening? I don't know. <laughs> well, see, the media tries to make everybody think that they oh, they listen to everything and say, well, think how many phone calls there are a day in this country. Many, many. Billions. Mm-hmm. They can't listen. I mean, what they're doing is they're targeting... Words, right? Sometimes words, but it's numbers mostly. Like if huh. if you're talking to somebody that has had a connection with somebody overseas, that's a target. Yeah. Then that might... That goes Red into a different it. different yeah. category. Now you, then you go back later and try to connect the dots with that, mm-hmm. you know. But it's... 
Well, I always not somebody joke that sitting there listening to everybody. No. Yeah, I always joke that I must be on a few watch lists because of this podcast, and I have to research some nefarious characters. And then on the other side, you know, I, I'm reading about how certain things are done, and yeah. you know, I'm sure, and I order odd books. Yeah. <laughs> on the internet, but yeah, it's so fascinating. I really mm. appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you. Okay. Um, if somebody wants to find you for investigative work, might they do so? Yes, uh, Hodges and Associates. I'll put uh, links to your website on my on my website so that okay. people can find and okay. some of the cases that you spoke of that and the people you spoke of. I'll put links too so that people can read more if they're interested, which I'm sure they will be. It's all fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. Bye, You're everybody. Welcome. Thank you.